You're listening to Rabbits and Adol Kozilski. And it's a welcome back to Soul to Soul this year. Yes, I'm back in the seat, thank God, after, I must say, quite a big break from mid-December. Um, hope everybody has had a fantastic break. Everybody's back at the grindstone. We had a wonderful time, thank God, celebrating uh, a couple of simchas in the family, which was wonderful. So we've really, really had a great time. And uh, I am very, very... Um, uh, I show a lot of gratitude to Hashem for allowing us to celebrate the simchas that we did in our family. So I all hope that you, uh, I hope that you all had a wonderful rest and are ready to learn again in, uh, Tehillim with me this year. We are going through chapter 119, which is the longest chapter of Tehillim. And, um, as I recall, we finished up Last year with, um, with, I think it was the letter Samach. And now we are going to start the letter Ayin, um, which is verses 121 to 128 of chapter 119. Lots of hundreds here. Um, and, uh, we're going to understand a little bit about what King David is telling us <coughs> in the eight verses that he he, you know, he uh, composes regarding the letter Ayin. But before we start, uh, let's go through understanding a little bit of what the Talmud says about the letter Ayin. So, firstly, the Talmud explains that the letter Ayin uh, stands for Oni, for a pauper, for a poor, poor person, and it follows after the letter Samach, and Samach means to support. So one of the things that we actually learn is that it is our duty, it is our moral duty as human beings to support the poor, that if you see somebody less fortunate than you, and you have to give, um, and all of us have what to give. You know, many times people give the excuse, oh, you know, I can hardly make ends meet myself. Um, I have no money. But if you really, really take a really, really honest look at yourself in 99% of cases, unless you yourself are the other pauper sitting on the other pavement, um, you have what to give. And it's not only about giving money. Um, it's about giving resources. It's about giving time. It's about giving a smile. It's about assisting in ways that don't not necessarily cost you money, but that you can give of yourself. And uh, this is why the Samach follows, the Ayn follows the Samach, because the Samach, meaning support, supports the supports the poor person. And uh, the Talmud actually takes this whole idea of poverty. Um, and when we actually think about the word poverty, what comes to our mind are, are poor people dressed in rags, no food on the table, not able to make mon- uh, you know, ends meet, not being able to get um, you know, the resources that they need. And it is a real and true situation. But the Talmud says that the highest level of poverty is an Ani Elabadea, that true poverty is actually poverty of the mind um, and of the soul. Um, and what the Talmud is teaching here is something unbelievably profound. And I think that it is really the basis, the fundamental of the... Of, of the world that when one 
um, possesses wisdom, one possesses everything. And he who lacks wisdom possesses nothing. And this is really, really a huge thrust and a, 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 a big discussion regarding education and a, a person, you know, not to plead ignorance. And this, again, is not only talking about a situation where you were not fortunate enough to get a proper education or, 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 or learn, etc. There is that situation and, you know, there are ways and means today for sure. There is absolutely no excuse for a person to even go around and educate themselves. There are, there are so many free resources, so much information that you can gather that there truly isn't anything around today that you need to know about that you cannot teach yourself at very worst. Obviously, at very best, you can go take courses, you can you know, take classes, hang around people who, 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 you know, who are like-minded, et cetera, et cetera. But the greatest poverty one can have is the poverty of wisdom, the poverty of, of, of understanding, of knowledge. And I think that basis, if one understands things and one asks questions and one learns, then allows people to have a better communication, um, person to person. And this, this transcends race, religion, Gender, it transcends everything because once you open up your mind and you learn about other things and other people and just other, something other outside of yourself, you actually open yourself up to much more um, in the world. And there should be a thirst for it. Very interestingly, talking about a, a, a thirst for knowledge, um, we're told that before the arrival of Mashiach, one of the signs will be that God will send a famine to this world. Yishlachti rav ba'aretz. I'll send a famine to this world, but it won't be a famine for food or a thirst for water, but it will be for the thirst of the knowledge of God. And this is something that we have seen um, happen and is happening to a greater extent more and more and more as time go, goes by that, that people have acquired their houses, their cars, their their their, you know, their holidays, their bank accounts, their fame, their, whatever it is that we have pursued, we've, we have got a tremendous amount of knowledge out there and people are still very unhappy. Um, there's a tremendous rate of depression um, and people feel an emptiness. Why? Because the greatest form of, of self-satisfaction, so to speak, is to have the knowledge, the understanding of your purpose in life and what you want from God. And so we have seen a huge thirst and hunger for understanding the spiritual side to life, not only taking in uh, the physical. So I, in the poor person, poverty in Torah actually extends to many, many ideas, not only on a practical level where you see a hungry man and uh, you give him something to eat, but hunger for knowledge, hunger for understanding, hunger for communication. Um, and that, as Torah says, ain't only Ella Bedea, that true poverty is really poverty of the mind and of the soul. The letter Ayin also literally Ayin means an I. And uh, we're told that by reading the teachings of the Torah with one's eye, one can relieve his intellectual and spiritual poverty. So if you use your eyes, because that's primarily how you will learn, you will open up a book, you will watch a YouTube video, you, you will, you know, you will use your eyes to resource, to, to gain that knowledge. By using your eyes, you can actually allow yourself to ingest understanding 
wisdom, knowledge. And the discerning eye also penetrates beneath the surface and is able to real, realize the sod, the secret behind Torah. And very interestingly, another twist to ayin, to the letter ayin, is that it has a numerical value of 70. And we are told and taught that there are 70 approaches to Torah. Ayin panim la Torah. There are 70 facets to Torah. And this is quite fascinating because many times people, uh, you know, think that, that Torah is literally just black and white. But Torah has many, many facets to it. And our rabbis teach that you can take any one mitzvah, any one concept, and there would be 70 angles to understanding it. And this is why Torah is such an incredible pursuit. And you don't get bored of learning, this, so to speak, the same thing year on year. We go back to the same parashiot. We, we you know, we, 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 uh, kind of like read the same things again and again because every time we do we see another aspect another understanding and that is really fundamental to our uh, our knowledge so if you have anything that you would like to share with us i'd love to hear from you our whatsapp number is 061-895-1019 you're listening to robertson adol kazilski Welcome back, and we are now going to look into the eight verses that start with the letter Ayin, and we are going to focus on, on verse 1 to 1, one sorry, 122, not 1 to 1, 1 to 2, 122, which starts um, the letters that go as follows, Asiti Mishpat Vatsedek, I'm just double-checking because it's right. Asiti Mishpat Vatsedek, Baal Tanicheni Le'oshkai, I practice the justice and righteousness. Abandon me not to those who exploit me. Now, um, justice and righteousness are really fundamental to the world, not only to the Jewish people, but to society as a whole. In fact, one of the seven Noahide laws is that houses of justice, law, need to be set up because without law governing the land, we actually have chaos. And uh, King David says, as he says, I practiced justice and righteousness, and just as I have, so too the Jewish people should behave like this at all times, make sure that we are moral human beings, that we are following that which is just and that which is righteous. And in fact, we are promised, according to the Midrash, that King David is also saying at the end of time, um, Yeshiyahu who pro- uh, prophesies, Tzion b'mishpat tipade veshavecha bitzdaka, that Tzion, Yerushalayim, will be redeemed with justice and they that return to her with righteousness. And basically what King David was saying, I, um, <clears throat> Israel will be saved because of justice, because I have executed justice and righteousness now. And this is really talking about a time of Mashiach when, um, and this is happening very soon. It's happening right now, in fact, um, in our time that we, we are soon going to see justice being met out everywhere that those who are, um, Exploiters, as it said in the, in the second part of the verse, Baltanicheni Laoshka, abandon me not to those who exploit me. Exploit me. There are many, many people around who are exploiters, who lie, who, who, who take bribes, who, who do all sorts of things to, to get their way. Um, slowly but surely, this world is going to be cleaned up. 
um, from from this mess and we are seeing around the world now whether it is in Iran and the social unrest that is happening there right now whether it is in Hollywood where where you know all those that are high and mighty very famous full of money etc have done not very nice things are, are being uncovered politicians everywhere um, where people are actually saying enough we want to have a moral a just a, a world full of justice and uh, that is part of the salvation that we actually come back to the absolute line where everybody behaves in a righteous manner and king david asks that i mean says that of himself that he practiced it but he also asks and gives the the uh, gives the the plea to god that he should never ever fall into the hands of those who exploit Justiceness and righteousness, and in fact, our rabbis teach in Perka Avot. Um, they, they say um, it's in chapter five that the sword of death will sweep the land as a punishment for corrupting justice and delaying the judicial uh, process. And we, we've seen it so many, many times, where eventually, uh, you know, people have enough, and there is a huge social unrest because of the corrupt justice that is being. Um, met out and basically um, this verse is implying that as well is that if we in ourselves personally do not practice justice and righteousness we ourselves will fall into the hands of oppressors so this is David's first prayer in verse 122 chapter I mean verse 123 reads my eyes pine for your salvation and for your promised righteousness. Okay. Um, sorry, I apologize. I'm reading the wrong verse. We're now going to say 122. I've skipped one. I was actually <laughs> a correction. The first verse of the I in verses is 121. 122 reads as follows. May your servants guarantor be for the good. Let not the willful sinners exploit me. Now, um, the word, root word arov means to commingle, means to intertwine. And indeed, it says the man who guarantees the physical safety of the financial obligations of another is intertwining himself with the fortunes of his comrade. And so we learn that what happens is that God himself will allow the one Jew to be intertwined with the righteous and the holy ones of the generation so that in their commutative merit, they will be included in the ingathering of the exiles and nobody will be harmed at the end of days with Gog and Magog, with Armageddon. So King David says, may your servants guarantor, may, may your servants guarantor be for good. Meaning, we will stand guarantees, guarantors, one for the other, uh, when it comes to the arrival of Mashiach. And we should intertwine ourselves and worry about each other's welfare and ensure that each and every one of us is living a productive and positive life based on Torah and mitzvot. Then we go on to verse 123 that reads, My eyes pine for your salvation and for your promised righteousness. And here King David is 
also crying to uh, about the fact that we Jews are in exile as we are now, and not only should we as Jews um, yearn for personal redemption in whatever troubles and tribulations we have, but we also are waiting for the cumulative redemption, the cumulative salvation of God, so to speak, um, when he will complete the long and tiresome time that we have spent in in exile. And that's why we say, we're waiting for your promised righteousness that God promises us. In fact, it's in Deuteronomy. I'll read you the, the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Um, God says, and Hashem will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of Hashem, your God, to keep his commandments and keep his statutes. So here we have a, pre- uh, a, a, a blessing, a promise for redemption. And it is something that we know throughout history. Jews have... Um, have always yearned for that, even in the darkest of our moments, be it the Spanish Inquisition, be it the Holocaust, we know that marching to their deaths, Jews have sang the words, Anima Amin, um, I believe with perfect faith in the arrival of Mashiach, and even if he tarries, I will wait for him every day. Because it's not only about who we are, it's not only about us having our own selfish desires, needs, wants, and and going out into the world to fulfill them, it's also that there is a community out there. There's 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 planet Earth. There are people on Earth, and we want and should desire to make this a dwelling place for God, and making sure that each and every human being uh, lives with dignity, lives with justice, lives with righteousness, um, and um, you know we should do everything in our power in our. Uh, Dalit Amot, in our sphere of influence, we should do as much as we can in our sphere of influence um, to get this done. So this is, again, uh, King David saying, I am, however, always looking. My eyes are always pining for your salvation and for your promised righteousness because you've made that promise. And I think one of the hallmarks of Judaism is that we see promises come true. Um, and um, there's a lot to say on it, not right now, but perhaps in a, another high FM slot. There's much happening in the world where we, we, we we're seeing a turnaround of, 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 of the promises starting to come true. And of course, what I am talking about is that we're on the doorsteps of the arrival of Mashiach. This world is going through incredible revolutionary changes. Um, quite amazing to watch. Um, quite a little scary, but, you know, wonderful that we are arriving almost at the end of days. Verse 124, uh, King David says the following, Treat your servant according to your kindness and teach me your Torah. Because one of the things that happens when we find ourselves in Gullus, when we find ourselves in exile, um, and we are burdened with so many difficulties, it's very hard for us to maintain our connection to God, our connection to His Torah. And yeah, sadly, if we've looked throughout history, we see that many, many times those trials and tribulations 
did indeed take their toll, and we we are suffering. Um, we we have suffered assimilation and um, a discontinuation of our legacy, our Torah, um, and we are. I guess we are also affected by the way the world looks at us, and you know we 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 are nervous, and so we tend to. Uh, forsake the Torah simply because it looks practically a better idea. I was actually reading a story to my family on Shabbat. I believe it to be a true story of a family that was um, found themselves in Hungary at the time of the Second World War. They were very much proud Hungarians. In fact, they put their Hungarian citizenship before the fact that they were Jewish. The, the grandparents of this family were observant Jews. The, the next generation felt it was better just to be patriotic, to be Hungarian. They were very, very well situated in Hungarian society. The father um, was a professor at the university. His father uh, was a professor of languages at, at, at the university, albeit that he remained observant. The son didn't. And, uh, you know, when the winds of war came into Hungary and they were towards the end after 1943 onwards, um, the, the rise of anti-Semitism was at a very, very frightful stage and the writing was on the wall. And um, the father tried to make papers to escape. And whichever embassies he went to to try get the the you know the papers done, the doors were closed on him simply because he was a Jew, and he unfortunately came up with a, a an idea, and he he found the, the local priest that was in his town. I'm not sure where in Hungary it happened, and he told the priest that he and his wife and child have chosen to convert to Catholicism. Uh, the priest, of course, was very excited. Not very often does he get willing converts. And they went through the process of conversion. And once the father converted, the mother, father and daughter converted, the father then again tried his hands at the embassies and he actually managed to get a visa for South America. Again, the story doesn't tell which town they went to in South America, but they managed to escape with their lives. And they left Hungary, the mother, the father, the daughter, and one elderly grandmother that, uh, that, that was still alive. And the four of them settled in South America. And when they arrived in South America, the um, parents chose not to tell the daughter, who was very young when she left, that they were in fact Jewish. They figured, you know what, let's just... Let's just throw off the shackles of this label um, and maybe then we can leave in peace. And they enrolled her in a very prestigious school there. It was a school of German expatriates, um, a very high education. And um, they lived there. And I think in the teenage years, it was, you know, she was coming towards the teenage years or maybe in the younger years. I'm not sure. Exactly when it probably would have either been 1948, maybe 1957. There was all this trouble in the Middle East with Israel uh, struggling to uh, maintain its borders and and struggling as a as a, as a young nation. Um, this young Hungarian girl felt very very drawn to the the entire story and did a tremendous amount of research 
on it. And she had very, very strong political um, ideas about <clears throat> what was right and what was wrong in, 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 this, in, this, in the conflict. And there were debates at school. People were talking, et cetera, et cetera. And she unabashedly, you know, spoke about her opinion on the Middle East affair. And much to her aghast, um, it wasn't accepted nicely. It wasn't well accepted. There wasn't a, a great reception to her what seemed radical views about the Middle East and she started to get shunned. People, the, the other girls didn't want to be friends with her, etc., etc. And it got to a very, very nasty and horrible place. And there was one particularly, one particular incident where she was sitting, I think, in, in, in the dining room, the mess hall, I guess, at break. And they were speaking something and she said something that I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what she said, but one of the people that was sitting, um, that was sitting next to her, said to her, a girl that was to her left, "Yeah, I believe that this girl, this this Hungarian, she has Jewish ancestries, and that's why she has such radical ideas." And then suddenly there was a huge gang up. And they went, yes, we believe your grandmother was Jewish. And if that is true, then you are Jewish too. And this was the first time that she had actually even heard such a thing. Um, and the story goes that she ran home and she confronted her mother. And um, she was like, you know, quite, quite uh, forceful with her mother and told the mother the story. And she said she wanted to know, is it true? She couldn't. She first went to the grandmother, but the grandmother sadly had become ever bottle. She had... Um, Suffered with with Alzheimer's in, in in her late years, and the grandmother couldn't remember anything. You couldn't have a normal conversation or or get out anything from the grandmother. But uh, she confronted her mother, and after much forcefulness, the mother admitted to the fact that yes, they were both they were Jewish. The family was Jewish. They in fact had observant grandparents, and the mother told her the whole story of why they ran um, away and why they chose not to tell her. And uh, the daughter's daughter's Jewish soul um, wouldn't take it lying down, couldn't take it lying down. And she actually understood for the first time in her life why she was so opinionated positively about the little uh, fledging nation of Israel and uh, why she, you know, she felt that she had to give it a voice and she had to speak her opinion in school. And she said to her mother, um, you know, maybe it's time that we actually come out of out of the, the the closet, and we recognize our Judaism because of who of who we are, and uh, you know stop stop playing this bluff. And she says, in fact, I'm telling you, mother, I'm not going back to that school. Um, there's a Jewish school around the corner. I want to go there. And if you're going to tell me you can't afford it or you don't want to send me, then I'm going to go and get a job in the summer, and I'm going to earn enough money to pay for the school fees. And in fact. She eventually managed to win her mother's opinion over, and the story ends that the mother undertook then to uh, to convince the father that it was time to take off the deceptiveness, to live with justice and righteousness, to live the way you're truly supposed to live, and that is to live like a Jew. And this is really, again, and I think this is what they did, um, this is what King David says when he says, I say im avdecha treat me according to your kindness, chukecha lamdeni, teach me your statutes, teach me what Torah is all about so that I can live a 
fulfilled life, a, a, a life of meaning and a life where I make life better for everybody else around me. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kozilski. Welcome back and we're uh, going through the verses that start with the letter Ayan. Um, in the Torah, and now we're going into verse 125 that reads as follows. Avdecha ani havineni, I am your servant, please grant me understanding, ve'eda edotecha, so that I may know your testimonies. And, and so here we are taught what King David is saying, that I am your servant, grant me understanding, meaning that in order for a servant to serve his master fully, and faithfully, he must have an intimate knowledge of every detail and facet of the master's life. And so David here is praying that I yearn to be your loyal, your useful servant. Allow me to understand all there is to know about your service so I may serve you um, in every way possible. And the Eida Eidotecha, so that I may know your testimonies, if you are a loyal servant, of the master, you will seize every opportunity to relate to your master. And what David is doing here is he's yearning, and this should be our yearning too. Um, he's yearning for the comprehension of God's ways, so that we could offer that, so that he could offer public testimony to a wide audience. Um, and this is really a chide from King David for us as well that we should ask Hashem, we are servants of you, Hashem, um, help us help us know your testimonies. Verse 126 reads, Eight, eight There is a time when Hashem will act, uh, because they voided your Torah. Now, what does it mean? Eight la'asot Hashem. Well, Basically, if you have somebody who's not doing the right thing and you, they're wasting their opportunities to repent, they will have cause to regret their deeds because one of the teachings that we have is that God is patient, he's long-suffering, he isn't swift to lash out and punish, but there will be eight la'asot la'ashem. There will be a time when it will come, a time will come for Hashem to act um, and he will punish those that have avoided his Torah. And honestly, when that time arrives, um, those that have done wrong will be powerless in the face of God's, God's fury. Because Hashem will arrange events so that the wicked um, will, will receive their, their recompense and they will, you know, it, it will, it'll be pretty obvious. That is, Essentially, the, the, the comment of the Rambam um, and uh, the Gemara, Rashi and Radak, who are other commentators, they offer an alternative interpretation. They say that it's always time to serve a God. Eight la sot la Hashem doesn't mean a time will come that God will punish, but eight la sot la Hashem, that there's always time to serve Hashem. Um, but it's not always time to take action on His behalf. Meaning that sometimes... Um, we're asking, let's go like this. We're asking Hashem to grant us understanding and we ask that He help us know when we are to act on His behalf. Now, there is a, 
a uh, this inter- this this interpretation that Russia and uh, Radak give is based on a verse that about Hillel. Hillel taught that if you, the scholar, see that that the Torah in your generation um, needs to be spread, then you should go out and teach it. But if you see that the Torah is not beloved in your times, then you shouldn't go out and force the teaching. Um, upon the people. And yeah, you can see that Hill is actually postulating a, a general rule about exercising leadership. You can't force Torah study on somebody, on the masses. Okay? When Torah is not popular, then what we need to do is we need to chide the people. We need to encourage everybody to inst- and to instill people with the love of Torah. Give the love of Torah over to the masses. Um, and in this way, we'll be, you'd be able to disseminate uh, Torah in a better time and there are times in Jewish history and there are times in everybody's personal life where it's your life is more conducive to God's service if sometimes you hit a weak, weak spot your evil inclination sways you okay then you know this is a time of darkness and this is a time where we should be able to rely on other people to 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 help us come back to 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 Torah. Eight la sot la Hashem that there's a time to always do things for Hashem teaches us that we should we should grab the opportunities, even in times that are negative, times that are hard, times that are bad. You will see that you will meet sometimes people who will completely devoid the Torah. They will denigrate it. They'll bring it into nothingness and say it's absolutely useless. And so when we add the two parts of the verse together, eight la sot la Hashem, that there's a time for Hashem to act when they have voided your Torah, Rava uh, in the Gemara teaches us that we can learn this verse backwards and forwards, meaning a time comes for Hashem to act, meaning to summon to justice those who avoided the Torah, that's forwards. Backwards, sometimes it's necessary to void the Torah in order to act for Hashem. What does it mean to void the Torah? So the example given is that very f- classic example of Eliyahu Hanavi, of Elijah the prophet, when he found himself on Mount Carmel, if you remember that once the temple was built, it was prohibited to offer sacrifices on the altar other than in the temple. Uh, but Eliyahu Anavi in his time saw that the Jewish people, the masses of the Jewish people were being overwhelmed by the devotion of false idols, etc., etc. And so he broke that law. What he did was that he arranged a contest on Mount Carmel between himself and the false priests and prophets of the, the idol. The idol in those times was called Baal. And in order to demonstrate the power of God, what he did was that it was necessary to summon a miraculous divine fire to descend from heaven to consume the sacrifice on the altar. Now, generally, this was prohibit, uh, prohibited because it was outside the temple. But here, Eliyahu and Navi, Elijah the prophet, is praised. He's not condemned because it was a temporary emergency situation that that one could justifiably void the Torah in order to act for Hashem. But there's a huge big caution here. And the caution is that none of us have the ability to temporarily suspend any type of of Torah law. Um, we only rely on our great people, our gedolim, our rebbers, our rabbis, um, 
those that are thoroughly versed in every aspect of the Torah, those whose piety and devotion um, to, to God are beyond um, the norm, they would then be able to, uh, to choose to do such a thing. Eliyahu Navi Elijah the prophet was one of those guys. Um, another guy that, uh, so to speak, voided the Torah was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. What did he do? He committed the Mishnah to writing. It was always forbidden to transcribe the oral law, but Rabbi Yehuda argued that the Torah was becoming forgotten due to insufficient knowledge, to insufficient scholarship in the oral law, and um, in order to preserve it, he he overrode this prohibition and he wrote down the whole oral law, the whole Torah Shabbatav, and thank God he did that because today we wouldn't have an oral law if we had only relied on the fact that it should be passed down orally. Um, one of the other things that we can learn from the word eight la sot la shem, eight, a time. You should set a time to learn. Uh, that's one of the things that um, the Talmud, Yoshami Talmud says. says, Koveya itim the Torah, that one needs to set time to learn Torah. And um, one should make certain times, certain, you know, intervals, certain spaces where you are learning Torah. I hope now is one of those times. Um, and, and in this way, we will make sure that our Torah never gets, never, ever, ever um, gets voided. So that is a pretty, there's a few interesting spins on those couple of words. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kozilski. Welcome back, and we're going to be wrapping up the verses starting with Ayn. We have two more, which basically say the same thing. Therefore, says King David, I have loved your commandments more than gold. Meaning, once you stop, start observing the, 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 the laws of the Torah, you start living a, a, a Torah way of life, you'll see that it's much, much greater than every mad pursuit of wealth. That, um, you know, it, it has much more depth than all the gold, um, that you can, you, you, you can attain. And he even goes, umi paz, even from fine gold. I have loved your Torah, alken ahafti mitzvotech. I've loved your mitzvahs, mizahav umi paz, from gold and even from fine gold. Meaning that riches, gold, the finest gold will not deliver for you, um, A, number one, at your day of judgment, when you leave this planet and you carry on on your soulful journey, but two, you will uh, also feel an emptiness in this world if you just go and pursue material wealth. In fact, Yechezkel, our prophet Yechezkel prophesies as follows. He says, they shall cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be as an unclean thing. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the days of the wrath of God. And as Proverbs also says, riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So King David kind of like sums it up um, in terms of making a time to learn Torah, in terms of acting with justice and righteousness, that, that this is the way to go. And he finishes up and says, Al Cain, therefore... Call Pikudei, call Yesharti, call Arach Sheker Saneti. I declare today the fairness of every mitzvah regarding everything 
and that I hate every path of falsehood. Um, so he takes out time over here to say that he appreciates the meaning, the value of each detail of Torah, and that he openly declares um, that everything that God tells us to do is compatible with human nature. And uh, we're kol orach sheker sanesi, everything that, um, that is the antithesis of godliness, he, he dislikes with a, a big intensity. And this wraps up uh, the verses that uh, are with a letter iron. I hope that uh, you enjoyed listening to Chai FM. I'm wishing you all a wonderful week, praying for everybody in the northern suburbs that we get our electricity back on. Thank you for listening, and please, God, I'll be back at the same time, same place, on Monday. Have a good day.